Eastern on a different day, you are also welcome to sign up. Easy. No. Why? <laughs> Clowns. Um, <clears throat> hello. If, uh, if you're new, my name is Paul, and I... I'm firstly feeling self-conscious because my wife says my shirt comes up and shows my underwear and no one wants to see the pastor's underwear. So I hope I'm, I'm acceptable now. Also, I don't know what to do with my hands like that. Um, and the next thing you need to know, I am empowered. Uh, if Bryce can give away coffee, he is small fry compared to what I can give away. Um, because I am able to give a whole heart ticket away to someone. Um, and my plan for this is to watch during the course of the sermon, because I see you all. Uh, and whoever looks most skeptical and least engaged will get the ticket at the end. <laughs> Okay, so that's the kind of backhanded compliment we all hope for. Um, but you, if you are visiting, um, yes, we have a shame culture here. That's the first thing you might be wondering about. Um, but the second thing is, well done for picking today. Whatever trade winds decided to blow you in on this particular Sunday uh, did you a favor because we're starting a new series. So you've arrived just at the right time to enjoy uh, a five-week series with us. We preach in series, uh, and it's always better to get a sense of what we're trying to say over a few weeks as opposed to just a snapshot in one 30-minute uh, hit. And so the series we're starting today uh, called That's What He Said, which is about relationships. Uh, and I was so excited about this title of the series until I realized I was going to have to try to explain it to you, and there's no way for me to explain that joke without making bad sexual innuendos off stage. So either you get the joke or you don't, and I can't help you, um, but instead of that's what she said, we're looking at what God has said uh, about relationships, and I'm really excited about this because relationships, like just think about it for a second, anywhere in your life that you're currently experiencing stress probably has to do with relationships. And you may think that the stress you're experiencing in some area is boring and objective like about cash flow, but if your relationships were in better state, you'd be able to face that stress more confidently. And this isn't just some airy-fairy idea. People run slower on the Comrades Marathon if there's trouble at home. But when their relational landscape is healthy, they're able to perform better physically. And if your relationships affect something as banal and objective as your physical strength, how much more does the quality and health of your relationships affect your ability to bring creativity to work, solve complicated parenting conundrums, face difficult mountains to, to overcome that might be stressing you out? Your relational health and the, the kind of state of your relational landscape just does make the rest of life go better. And probably most of the mistakes you've made, most of the scrapes you've got yourself into, had you had better relationships around at the time, may well have ended up differently, if we're honest about it. But because I trusted that person, or relied on that person, or didn't have a wise set of counsel to bounce things off, I ended up in the scenario which otherwise I might have avoided. So we could all do with better relationships. Healthier relationships make all of life go better, and none of us are brilliant at doing relationships. The, the, I know most of you. They're hard, right? They involve these unknowable, unpredictable, uncontrollable human beings on the other end of them. And you can't barely lead yourself, never mind control anyone else. Um, and so relationships are just complex. And to try and get them to go healthier and better, we need a huge amount of help. God has a huge amount of help for us in the space of relationships. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to study all kinds of interesting things, how to do romantic relationships better, how to do workplace relationships better, principles like assertiveness and boundaries and all these other good things. Uh, the parenting course will be doing a huge amount of that work for us as well, parallel to this. So we are going to get a whole lot of good skills. But before we even get into the skills and practices of how to do relationships well, there's one huge concept that we have to 
buy into. And so if you are retrospectively listening to this on the podcast, well done. That was the right thing to do. Because this foundational principle sets us up to do relationships well. And until we've been offended by this principle, confronted by it, figured out how to metabolize it, all the other principles are still built on a wonky foundation and will send us off into relational unhealth that we were in to start with. So the rest of the series won't be much good to you without this one principle. And it's the principle of fairness. We like fairness. We're into fairness. Uh, and the reason we care about fairness, the reason our radar is so attuned to pick up injustice, particularly when we're the victims of it, the reason we're so attuned to it, the reason we're so affected by unfairness is because we are competitive people. We are competitive. It's just how we are. You may not think of yourself as a sort of sportingly competitive person, but we love to compare. Comparison is a disease that we all have. And as we compare, we're comparing up and we're comparing down. And we figure out where we are in the food chain. And we're deciding, do I need to feel guilty or do I need to feel jealous? Do I need to feel guilty or do I need to feel jealous? Are they better off than me or worse off than me in whatever way? And this thing is so deeply wired into you that it's really hard to pick out. We are competitive people. I, um, a while ago, decided to take up golf, which just, looking back, what a bad decision. Um, but, but I wanted to fit in with my in-laws better, right? And they're all golfists uh, of, of great repute. Um, and I wanted to be able to survive a round of golf on the next family holiday instead of being the dunce that has to walk around with the bag, okay? Uh, and in the process of deciding to play golf, someone, possibly my wife, leaked the information. Uh, and my brother-in-law got wind of it. New to the family, definitely less coordinated than me, younger than me. And he decided to learn to play golf in time for the same family holiday, which was just incredibly rude of him to do. Um, and so then, obviously, it becomes a competition, right? Which son-in-law is going to have got himself into better golf-playing shape by the time the family holiday comes around? And I was pretty confident I'd do better because I had a tennis ball and I could get the tennis ball consistently off the ground with the one golf club I had. Uh, and that's all it takes, really, to be good at golf, isn't it? Um, Turns out not quite. So then the day of, the, of the, you know, the big reveal of who's gotten better at golf, and he turns up with this naked set of old clubs. I'd been given my father-in-law's clubs because I'm the favorite, uh, and because he was clearly convinced that I would be better at golf, hence he decided to invest in the correct uh, horse. And then I watched my brother-in-law with this like, mechanical, nasty-looking swing that like, isn't Rory McIlroy-esque at all. Uh, and then I watched him just ping the ball down fairway after fairway after fairway. And when it's my turn, I'm standing there with the club. I couldn't even like, affect the golf ball at all. I was having no influence on it. it like, and then it was eventually when I did hit it, it would just never go, like often straight down into the ground. It would bury itself and the tee into the floor and scraping paint off the parts of the driver that were never supposed to touch a golf ball. And you know, then my sister-in-law, with all the emotional intelligence, of her species would wander up and say, someone needs to work on their long game. <laughs> and then later on, if I'd eventually been able to coax the ball with about 15 shots to the green, then I'm trying to get it to go into the hole, which, you know, however you do that. And she'd wander up and go, someone needs to work on their short game. And I feel like someone needs to work on finding a new family uh, quite quickly. Um, and there's this like, angry, embarrassed, there must be some kind of rig against me, some cosmic, you know, uh, conspiracy going on, and it's like, I haven't been so close to crying in my adult life, those like hot, angry tears, as this uncoordinated mechanical thing that my brother-in-law was doing continued to get the ball to go in the right place. And the result of that experience 
was not, as you might think and hope, and Byrne was certainly hoping, that I give up golf. No, of course not. The result of that experience is now I'm finding myself YouTubing golf tips in the middle of the night and standing on ranges trying to hit a ball. And because I'm male, probably that's the main reason, um, and because I have yeah, the emotional intelligence of a 12-year-old, but also because we have this thing inside us that is like, I've got to <coughs> defeat this opposition. I've got to solve this problem. I've got to measure myself against this challenge and, and overcome it. And all of us have this like striving thing inside us. And if you are, and you probably should be, looking at that story with pity and kind of a level of condescension that you wouldn't have been as dumb as me, I submit to you that in other areas of your life, you're doing the exact same thing. Because we're competitive people. Because we want to overcome challenges and beat the opposition. And um, this has consistently led to bad stuff going on. Because competition at its root essentially is you've compared yourself to someone else. And anytime we compare, you have two choices. As I said, either you feel guilty or you feel jealous. Either you look at what they have that you don't have and you feel that's somehow unfair and you have some element of shame or insecurity that comes out of that, and we'll go back to that option. But the other option is you look at their weaknesses and you see some strengths that you have, and now you decide to use those to gain an advantage. And we've been doing this forever. In your business life, you've looked at the market, you've looked at your competitors, and you've figured out there's a weakness here, and I'm going to use my unique strengths to turn a profit. This is what sports teams do. Rugby teams, I'm told, try to make it so that their backs are running at the forwards because the backs are faster and more nimble and can run around the forwards. In every sphere of life, we're trying to look at the strengths we have, the weaknesses our opposition has. I am better at, I'm richer, so I'm going to take advantage of the poor. I have more power, so I'm going to take advantage of the disempowered. I have more physical strength, I'm going to take advantage of the weak. I'm older, I'll take advantage of the young until eventually the young realize they can actually take advantage of the old. And in all these spheres of life, we are trying to analyze where the margin is, where my strengths can expose a weakness so that I can get ahead. And the Bible tells us this isn't a new idea, that from the very beginning, we've been up to this. That at some point, men started using their physical strength to dominate women. That at some point, women started to realize they were more emotionally intelligent and beautiful and were able to make men do what they wanted. This is just stereotypical, but Scripture tells us stories of this kind of thing happening. And you've seen the rich take advantage of the poor. And so much of Scripture is saying, hey, rich people, stop taking advantage of the poor. We've worked out that in an argument, if I'm able to think quicker on the spot, then I can just wait to see the holes in the other person's argument. And we're not actually communicating anymore. I'm just waiting to see the gap so that my strength can allow me to win the competition. And competition is terrible. Competition creates injustice. Competition is why we then feel like we desperately need some referee to make it fair. Because the world is unfair, isn't it? it is, it's not okay, and it shouldn't be okay that the gender pay gap continues to this day. In fact, if you're annoyed about the gender pay gap in pretty much every industry, wait until you've heard this. The car that you drove here today in was tested with a male crash test dummy. There is no such thing as a female crash test dummy, which means your car is safe for men if they're in the median size and weight. But there is no crash test dummy that you takes into account the slightly different pelvis and female length and neck strength of a lady, never mind the fact that no crash test dummy has breasts on it. You may have noticed that with the seatbelt design. So your car is simply not created to be safe for women as much as it is made to be safe for men. More ladies die of heart attacks because the female symptoms for heart attacks are different from the male symptoms of heart attacks generally. But the medical assumption is that these are the normal symptoms, and so if you're presenting with nausea, well, we're not expecting that. We're expecting pain in the right arm, and so you don't get 
diagnosed as quickly or treated as successfully because normal, standard female symptoms are still considered abnormal compared to the textbook, which is based on men. This shouldn't be okay. And that's just in the space of gender. The truth is, in the Western world, if you're not white, you're less likely to be paid. The truth is that in our country, if you go to most government education facilities, you're not likely to get the kind of education required to earn anything like a decent wage. These things should make us crazy. This is just not fair. And at some point, China happens to have the upper hand right now, and so they outbred us, then outdisciplined us, then bought all the things we need, and are now selling them to us at an inflated rate. And we're going, well, that's not fair either, even though plenty of other civilizations have done that before. And, and depending on the color of your skin, you might have benefited from that in the past. And we keep on going, well, as soon as I'm on the losing end of one of these injustices, we, I'm going to start a Facebook campaign, I'm going to lobby government, because this is wrong and it's got to be fixed. And you're absolutely right. Those injustices must be fixed. They're not okay. They should make you crazy. And this is not something that society only wants to try and redress. If you go to Act 6, there was inherent racism in the early church, and um, Jewish widows were receiving the handouts, and Greek widows weren't because the church was, to begin with, very Jewish. And so to redress that unfairness, the beginning, the early leaders said, okay, we're going to put some Greek um, deacons in charge of the food um, store so that everyone gets a fair amount of food. So it's okay to fix unfairness. It's okay to try and redress injustice. It's good to do that. But I just want to ask a question, particularly in the space of relationships. Is fairness all that it's cracked up to be? And we've looked at the world and gone, okay, competition is just a it's just a fact of life. People are going to compete and try to get ahead. So let's just make it as fair as possible. Let's eliminate bias. Let's eliminate unnecessary headwinds that certain groups of people have to take. Let's make it fair at all costs. And we've brought that same thinking into relationships. Let's make it fair at all costs. Is that the solution it's cracked up to be? Is that the highest goal of human relationships, that we get to fairness? Or could there be something higher, something more beautiful, something that sets us up for better relationships than just trying to get fairness? I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, because in 1 Corinthians 12, there is a troubling answer to it. There's a confusing and troubling version of human relationships that Scripture lays out for us that doesn't seem to have anything to do with fairness. Paul's just been talking about how different people get different talents and different skills. And God is into difference. Male and female, he created them. I'm not apologizing for the fact that he's made us different. Early on, when there was kind of one culture and they were building a tower called Babel, God split up the people and created different languages and nations. And just so you know, in Revelation, we see a picture of the redeemed world, how things go at the end, and there are still tribes and tongues and nations. God is not colorblind. He's into difference. He created difference unapologetically. <coughs> Different people groups, different genders, different styles of doing things, different gifts to different folks, different amounts of grace or skill in different areas. And so Paul's just been describing the fact that God has given different people different gifts with which to help one another. That's already a bit of a clue. And then he goes into this discussion of how that plays out. He tries to use a metaphor to explain what that looks like in society. So it's the one and only spirit from 1 Corinthians 12 who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. And here's the metaphor that Paul then reaches for to help us get a sense for what this looks like. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Paul is not talking about some have red hair, some have blonde hair. 
Some are slaves. Some are free. These are, this is not like different strokes for different folks. These are huge differences, injustices. And Paul's saying, yeah, yeah, it's not the most important thing. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that doesn't make it any less a part of the body. If the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? In other words, if any one body part decides, this is unfair, I'm going to start a Facebook group, I'm going to lobby government, I'm going to make a good hashtag, because this being different thing isn't acceptable, we need to all be the same. Paul's saying, it doesn't make any difference. God has already decided you are how you are. He is not influenced by your hashtag. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. Let's just feel the force of that again. God has put each part just where he wants it. Your skills, your opportunities, your disadvantages, your advantages, the grace in your life and the weakness in your life, where you find yourself today in the complex fabric of the the things that you feel you get to be a little proud of, the things that you're feeling jealous of in other people, the disadvantages you're struggling with, God has put you just where he wants you. No apologies. You are exactly how he designed you to be and all your difference. Okay, where are we? Oh, goodness. Um, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, and this is where it starts to become interesting, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary, and the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should, be not, should not be seen, while the honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members, so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. It's challenging because God is saying, there is a beautiful version of relationship available. This incredible thing described at the end, this really intimate kind of community where those who lack are celebrating with those who have. Those who have are suffering with those who lack. Those who are winning get cheered on by those who are losing. Those who are losing get sympathized with by those that are winning. This is unheard of. Like we can't pull this off, normally speaking. God is saying that level of intimacy, that level of community, those kinds of healthy relationships, only possible if you give up on fairness. But as long as you're fighting for fair treatment, as long as you believe that difference is evil and equality is the ultimate silver bullet to solve human relational pain, this kind of relationship is impossible for you. That kind of community won't come until you give up on fairness and fight for something more amazing, something more beautiful than fairness, something more incredible than just having a good referee that kind of controls the competition and stops you from getting an evil advantage over one another. There's something more noble. There's something more beautiful. There's a different way for us to live. And it's challenging because that means that some of us may be slaves in the church going, crumbs, this is not fair. And others may be business owners and saying, that's not the most interesting thing about you. That's not the most important thing about you. I've still given you some grace, some gifts to help others with. I've still given you some areas of need where you need help from others. Challenging. 
But if there is a higher standard than fairness, then that starts to suggest that maybe the solution to bias isn't just to obliterate all difference. Maybe the solution to competition isn't simply conformity, some kind of communist system where every kid gets a medal, where if you are strong in some area, you have to actually feel a bit ashamed about that. If you're the the fastest, if you're the smartest, you're not supposed to glory in that because then you start to look like some kind of egotistical maniac. That everyone has to be brought down to the same level. God is saying, that's not how I designed you to be. I've given you something beautiful. Blow your horn in that area, because it's not actually your horn. It's something God gave you to blow. Serve the community with it in beautiful ways. Stop apologizing for the fact that you are the strongest in this area. Offer it to the community freely. Because as we heard in the body, if one part gets extra honor in a certain area, that's okay. God designed it that way. And if in some area you never get the profile that you would like because it's your role in that space is different, glory in that. Celebrate in that. Each one of you has got good stuff to add. And conversely, each one of us have weakness that we need to offer to others to help us with. So I get to show glory to God by expressing the stuff he's made me really good at without shame. And I get to ask for the glory of God to help me via other people in my areas of weakness without insecurity. There's some stuff that you've brought to our church that you suck at. You're weak in that area. You're wounded in that area. And it is exactly how God designed it that you bring that here. Because he loves to use the weak to shame the strong. He loves to get the glory for fixing our brokenness, often through each other. And so as we try and cover up and pretend we're strong in areas we're actually weak, we are robbing the community of an opportunity to live out 1 Corinthians 12. Bring your weakness, bring your frailty, bring your blind spots, and with absolute security, say, hey, I need help here. And there's some stuff that you brought that you are just incredible at, you're world-class at, you love doing that thing more than anyone else. When you do it, life will flow. But out of some kind of modesty, we're hanging back because we don't want to, you know, tall poppy syndrome. Bring it, shout it, get all the credit that you think you're going to get for it because actually you're going to give it to God. We need that thing from you. And as we can get out of this obsession with fairness, some kind of amazing relationships become possible. Isn't it interesting how competition actually dehumanizes the opposition? See, that striving for fairness just accepts that competition is a thing and now we're just going to make sure everyone plays by the same rules. But competition dehumanizes the opposition. You become this obstacle I have to overcome. You become this evil car industry mogul who decided to kill women in cars, and so you, I hate you, and you just, we dehumanize the opposition. I'm going to start my petition and get my hashtag, and I'm, I'm no longer seeing you for who you really are. Competition is terrible for that reason, because when you dehumanize the person you're competing with, it's a form of blasphemy, because that person was created in the image of God, even if they are responsible for great evil. Even if they represent the thing that you, for holy reasons, despise, that person, you don't get to despise because that person was created in the image of God. And so as I reduce you to some stereotype that I just want to fight against and beat, as I listen to you and all I'm trying to wait for is the chink in your argument so that I can respond, it's a version of blasphemy because I'm saying that image bearer of God is no longer a human, they're just a thing, they're just a point of view. And if that's blasphemous, please hear, the inverse is equally blasphemous. Let's go back to that original idea. When you compare to someone else, you either go, well, they have unfair advantages over me, or you go, I have unfair advantages over them that I'm going to take advantage of. That's called competition. This is called victim mindset. 
And I give myself an excuse because, well, I'm not like him or her. I don't have that strength. I don't have that opportunity. I have all these disadvantages and weaknesses. Oh, woe is me. And when you do that, when you say, oh, woe is me, there's something wrong with me, there's something that disadvantages me from the outset, it's blasphemous. You're made in the image of God with glory to offer. And when I get woe is me and victim mentality, I am dishonoring the glory God has put inside me. I'm dishonoring the grace over my life. I'm dishonoring him in whose image I am created. We don't get to do that. We don't get to make excuses. We get to say, I suck at this. I'm weak in this area and I need the grace of God. Thank goodness there's more of that. And I need the community of God. Thank goodness they've got strengths I don't have. And I have this stuff that I'm brilliant at. And I'm embarrassed to talk about it because I don't know if everyone will really be excited to hear it. But I'm brilliant at this. Shout about it. Stop being fake modest. Because to do that is to be blasphemous. You're created in the image of a glorious God who doesn't have any self-conscious conditions. He is happy to tell you what he's glorious about. And you get to do the same. And so... This starts to explain, if this competition thing dehumanizes the opposition, this starts to explain how you can be having a conversation with your spouse about the best way to fold the checkers packet, and then suddenly discover you now divorce is the only solution. <laughs> like it could go from there to there, because at some level we've bought into this idea of it's about who's right, it's about who can win. And that fundamental starting point for any relationship is death to that relationship, because at some level I'm dehumanizing you. You are not you, glorious complicated, strong, and flawed, representing the image of God. Now you're just a set of ideas, a set of things you want, and I just want to get my way instead of you getting your way. And polite grown-ups can suddenly end up competing tooth and nail in relationships that were supposed to be about intimacy, that you initially were aiming at getting more connected, and now you're just aiming at getting, being right. And this explains how in parenting moments, you can go from thinking you're coaching this little person to now fighting tooth and nail to prove that you are smarter than them, and at the moment, it's not clear who's going to win that fight. <laughs> and boarding school is the only solution, right? Because competition snuck in when that was never supposed to be the goal. If I allow any level of competition into my relationships, it dehumanizes you to some extent. It's blasphemous. I'm no longer recognizing the glory of God, the image of God that you bring with your unique weaknesses and your unique, your unique strengths. So here, with all that kind of backstory, comes another scripture, which, if you read it in the cold, sort of unprepared light of day, can feel like a bit of a splash of water to the face. But in this context of, okay, fairness is not actually all it's cracked up to be. We've never had a world that campaigns more for fairness and that is more lonely and at each other's throats. Fairness is important. It's something, but it's not the ultimate thing. And difference is good, and difference is okay. And if my strengths aren't as great as your strengths in some area, that still means I can glory in them. And if my weaknesses seem enormous to me, I can still offer them without insecurity. With all that backstory, let's read this scripture, right? 1 Peter 3 verse 7. It's about marriage, the ultimate relationship, the, the ultimate crucible to test this stuff. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. There's a bunch of stuff going on in here, right? First, God is acknowledging that thing he said from the beginning, before the fall, men and women are different. 
Male and female, he created them with different strengths, different gifts, different things to offer. And every single bloke is different from every other bloke. I get that. And every different lady is different from other ladies. And, you know, there are these stereotypes that guys are supposed to be good at this and girls are supposed to be good at that. And then there are outliers that kind of make a mockery of that. That's okay. But deep down, spiritually speaking, gender is real. God created you male, created you female. So God is acknowledging. It's not just a socialized choice. I've given you a gender, and that's a good thing. And both are worthy of honor. Starts out, wives, be honored by your husbands. But then there is this line, she may be weaker than you in some area. Now, who knows specifically what? Is that physically? Is that whatever else? We all know that ladies are weaker at taking bread and putting peanut butter on and eating that thing without the use of a plate. And shame also, ladies haven't worked out that to close the bread, you just need to spin it in the packet, fold that over and put it in the cupboard. The little plastic thing is a crutch that they've invented for ladies only. Now, who knows, right? Because as you read through Scripture, and amazing people like Deborah and Phoebe in the New Testament, there are, there are potently strong ladies. So this is not to say men are strong, women are not. Clearly not. There are a whole bunch of strengths that women bring that guys typically have less of. And there's some other strengths that guys have that women typically have less of, apparently, according to Scripture. And this just feels like terrifying to say. And as you hear these things, if you're getting offended, it's a symptom that we live in a fairness-obsessed culture. God is saying, it's okay. You're different, different strengths, different weaknesses, equal partners in God's gift of new life. And so bring your strength and offer it, not in competition and not trying to use fairness as some plaster to stick over competition, but to complement one another. That's the alternative. It's not we either compete or we pretend we're identical and we conform or we use fairness to somehow make the competition not too evil, there's another alternative that you can use your different strengths and your different weaknesses for, and that's to complement one another. And we're being called to complement one another in this ultimately difficult relationship, marriage. And here's the big carrot at the end of the stick. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Oh my goodness, what does this even mean? To some extent, God is saying, if you want to have a great relationship with me, have a great relationship with her. If you want me to add my strength to you, you add your strength to her, and you vice versa to him. If you want me to get behind your thing and add my strength to you, you add your strength to him, and you get behind his thing. That we are called to give up on competition and then fairness as the plaster to stick over it, and we're not supposed to knee-jerk into, well, we're all just the same and there's no difference. You created different, different strengths, different weaknesses, made in the image of God. And use those things to complement one another, not just to compete with one another. And ultimately, when we give up on fairness, when we choose to bring our strength, even where it's not asked for, even where it's not appreciated, when we choose to offer our weaknesses, even when they're not stewarded carefully by those we're offering them to, even when we feel a little taken advantage of when we do that, when you live in this terrifyingly exposed way, some kind of beautiful relationship is possible. And certainly, as you think about this, you can probably start to identify some areas in your life where you have been feeling like the victim of unfairness and that's been your get-out-of-jail-free card. You no longer have to take responsibility in that area because you were treated badly. And today, possibly, you just have to remove that excuse once and for all. And go, okay, cool. I'm still going to take responsibility even though I was treated unfairly in that area because I can commit to healthy relationships. You might also be able to think of some areas in your life where you have competed where you've taken, advantage, you've taken advantage of a strength that you have where you've seen a weakness in someone else as opposed to offering your strength in complementarity. 
And it's good to think that way, right? You shouldn't be sitting here thinking about that person who you think really needs to listen to this sermon. That's never a good way to listen to sermons. It's not even a good way to preach them, okay? We're supposed to be listening to these truths going, okay, where, does this, where do I fall short in this area? Where does this expose something in me? But there's a bigger question, not just how do I choose to stop living for fairness, why would I do that? That's the bigger question. What is going to motivate me to live in this excruciatingly exposed way? Because fairness is such a nice defense. And I would submit to you that the thing that can fuel this way of life, which God is promising, leads to true intimacy, great relationships, where the weak celebrate with the strong, where the strong mourn with the weak, where we are totally visible to one another. The thing that fuels us into living that way might have something to do with the experience of having had someone else die for you, of having been the beneficiary of gross injustice. Because whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not, you are the beneficiary of gross injustice. The last thing we need is fair treatment. Believe me, the last thing we need. The psalmist says, Lord, if you were to number our sins, if you were to really judge us, who could stand? We are in deep trouble if this universe is fair. And when you've experienced, when you've acknowledged the truth of the fact that a sinless, incredibly good God, purely out of the goodness in him, nothing to do with any supposed goodness in you because there was no goodness in you, chose to die for you anyway, chose to be whipped and mocked and tortured for you when you deserved it and he didn't, when spiritually speaking we were the scum of the earth and yet the glory of heaven decided to die on our behalf, when you've experienced the benefits of that kind of injustice, I suspect it makes this way of living much easier. Because isn't that the great irony of it all? That the church is the beneficiary of such huge injustice. And yet, in our personal lives, we're prepared to now fight for fairness. No, you have been forgiven much, and so you can forgive much. You've been given much that you didn't deserve in God. You can give what others don't deserve. You have been treated on the basis of something that someone else did. And so you can give to someone else even when they don't appreciate it or ask for it. That we can somehow, as ambassadors of this other culture, bring that into the world. Because the church, please hear this, the church has been at her best, not when she's been fighting for fairness. And there have been good moments in the church's history where we've fought for fairness, where we've ended the slave trade, when we've done other really good, glorious things. And it's great, the church must continue to do that stuff. But the church has been at her best when she's being led off to the Colosseum, blessing her captors as she goes, where Christians are being taken into places that they don't deserve to be, treated in ways they don't deserve to be treated, and in that space, they've been gracious, and they've been strong, and they've been full of love, and if the church is at her best when she's like that, you're at your best when you're like that. Something inside you longs for that, actually, to bless those who curse you, to love your enemies, to do the stuff that is just impossible to get your head around until you've experienced the radical injustice of the gospel. Jesus, out of the goodness in him, not the goodness in you, decided to die for you and save your life. And whether you believe it or not, it's still true. And as we grab hold of this radical injustice we're the beneficiaries of, we can then start to live in a totally different way that actually, selfishly, we should live because it leads to much better relationships. So today is the day where we put to death fairness. And as we go on from here and learn about boundaries and learn about all these other skills and tools, let's go into it with this idea of I am called to complement with my strengths, not to compete and not simply to conform, not to take advantage or just hope that we can keep things fair, that in our marriages and our parenting, we're just going to make sure that everyone gets their own 
needs met to roughly the same degree. No, I'm called to offer my strengths and offer my weaknesses without shame and without insecurity. And something beautiful is possible when we do that. Shall we pray? Because God, we want this. It's terrifying. It's hard to imagine how we could get there. But we trust that you do know more about relationships than us. And we're prepared to accept, Lord, that our pursuit of a fair deal has not actually satisfied us. And in our marriages, in our families, in our workspaces, in our friendships, in our life groups, in our communities, Lord, if you're leading us into another way to relate to these human beings who bear your image, God, we want to obey you. We want to follow you into that way of living. And for so many of us, it's pain that stops us. It's having been taken advantage of in the past. It's having been hurt in the past. It's the sense of insecurity that I don't have what is needed. And so, Spirit of God, would you just heal us right now? In this instant, you can. Our past pains, our past shames, our weaknesses, our wounds. Would you help us to to see those things as old news, not the things that define us any longer. Would you upgrade our identities, Lord? Would you move us into awareness of who you see each and every person in this room as, the love you have for them, the plans you have for them, the grace you've put inside them, the glorious gifts they have to share, the wonderful opportunity that their weaknesses give them to include the people of God in their lives? to allow the grace of God to flow even in our brokenness. Would you just lift our heads, please, Lord, and help us to see a way to live that is complementary, is gracious, is totally unfair. And as we do that, God, I pray that the ripple effects of your culture that you establish here would just create a life everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen.